Well, speaking of, we're going to jump right in here. Um, glad you're here today. Uh, and um, we're in a series called Faith and Doubt, but I want to start by telling a story of something that happened uh, last summer. Now, last summer, especially in you know, COVID months, seems like, like an eternity ago, doesn't it? Um, does anybody remember in late July, we had this huge monsoon downpour, rainstorm, things flooded all over the place, and, and uh, people had house damage. All, does anybody remember? It was so humid. It was one of those like, extreme you know, late July deals. Well, we had been out of town and we came home to discover um, that there was water on the floor, um, which is a little bit of a problem because we have wood floors, like the original wood floors from this house, down there. And I was like, oh, man, uh, yeah, how, how bad can it be? It's just kind of a little, from what I could see, it was just a little part of the hallway. And then the problem was, you know, you look a little deeper and, oh, no, no, it went into the office on the end of the hallway, into the carpet and the pad, and, oh, wait, underneath the air conditioning unit, oh, that's why the water's happening, it's leaking from there. And then, oh, the, the uh, bathroom right there, downstairs bathroom was uh, water damage just kind of everywhere, uh, was not good. So we called the insurance company, and they said, hey, call, uh, you know, a renovation company, and they gave us a name, and that place said, oh, everybody's booked forever, we can't get out there for five days, and you need this taken care of right away. You need to call this other renovation company, and they referred somebody to us, who came out, looked at the damage, and said, whoa, yeah, this is, uh, this is something, this is big. And so, you know, cleaned up what they could, we called the air conditioning company to come out and find out what was going on. Um, it turns out that, that our, our condenser line on our AC had plugged. And then when it filled up, the water just started dripping everywhere, and it actually caused more damage to the AC unit, which was already, you know, 20-some years old. But it was dripping all over the place, everywhere. So they unplugged the line. Should be good. Should be fine, right? Just mop up the stuff, and you're good. Well, it turns out it's not that, that uh, simple. I know that's not a surprise to you guys, but I'm not the handiest of dudes, so... Uh, nope, you start pulling things up and realizing that if we don't take care of this, there's going to be more damage. And in fact, in just a few days, mold had already started happening. So they come in and start not just pulling out the wood floor, they have to chip it out because when it was originally installed, it was glued to the surface, you know, in 1994, like you do. Uh, and and um, so they had to actually start working with a jackhammer to try and shave up the woods. So now we've got dust everywhere. They're cutting out the wet walls. There's, our bathroom no longer has like a vanity and a sink. Instead, we had to take like one of those laundry tub sinks and just kind of prop, Mark helped me prop it up on something so we could at least have running water down there. I mean, it was a mess. It was a mess. Um, it wasn't just this plugged line that had to be replaced uh, that had been dripping. Um, it was actually more dripping that started, and we didn't find that out for a few days, though. Uh, they fixed the AC unit, and I kept thinking, you know, it seems like there's still some drips happening here. Um, and there was. There was. So um, the AC company comes back, and, you know, this is an old air conditioning unit, so finding the parts was going to be a losing prospect, expensive, and so we were going to have to buy the bullet, bite the bullet and get a new... Um, air conditioner, but how many of you know that those aren't just sitting around waiting for people to, right? It takes time. So 
Here, here's what I got to do is a couple times a day I'd have to take a pail from under the 8C unit and dump it out in the sink and put it back there to catch the drips because it looks like just a couple drips here and there. It's not that big of a deal except when it does that 24-7 all day long. A little drip starts to matter. Um, so we knew we were going to have to pay for a new you know, AC unit. That's not insurance coverable. But... Um, the bad news for us was that the insurance company would not cover the water damage, the flooding, even though multiple professionals said this is an open and shut case of where it should be covered. Our insurance agent even admitted that it should have been covered, but we found out that the agent uh, or the adjuster who came out to do it he actually had a reputation for denying claims, so not covered, not covered. We had to find a way to pay for all of that, and by the way, not to, you know, I don't want to name names of the insurance company, but, but like a good neighbor, who's there? <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all, right? Every time I see a State Farm commercial, it is an opportunity for me to take all the tension that rises up in my body at that moment, breathe and let it go. So, for many months, you know, our house was torn up because we're arguing with the insurance company. It was a mess, but the whole thing that was almost humorous to me, except it wasn't, um, was it all started with just what seemed to be kind of an insignificant little drip, drip, drip. Just started with a drip. Just a little bit. Um, now, what would have happened... Because, again, I'm not the handiest or smartest of guys. What would have happened if we would have tried to just ignore that leaky drip? If we would have just thought, ah, it's not really that bad. Um, instead of tearing up and looking underneath to see what's actually ruined, um, what if we just throw down some towels? You know, just turn on a couple of little fans and just hope for the best. How, how do you think that would have worked out? Anyone? Yeah, not, not so good. Um, it would have actually led to more damage, more rot, decay, mold, and a bigger mess. Um, and this is a big part of why we've spent four or five weeks in this sermon series entitled Faith, with a question mark, Faith? I doubt it. Because ignoring doubts, uh, pretending that we don't have doubts, can actually lead to damage or decay, rot, it can lead to a big mess in our lives. Like, we're not doing this series because I just kind of think it's cool, you know, to be a skeptic or, or that I um, think highly of people who run around trying to tear down the faith of other people uh, and their beliefs. Um, no, no, the reason we're doing this series is because we want to encourage the people of hope, the family, the friends of hope, um, and, and let you know, remind you that it's okay to be honest about your doubts and God can handle it. Like, it's okay to ask questions, even uncomfortable questions that we might not have, you know, great or satisfying answers to or have any answers to. Because um, as we've looked at, before our small group took a break, small groups took a break, as we've looked at, authentic biblical faith is not the same thing as absolute certainty. So if you wrestle with honest doubts, if you wrestle with questions... Um, hear me, your doubts don't make you a bad Christian, they make you human. Now, now how many of you have heard of the classic Christian um, kind of devotional author, and he did much more than that, but Oswald Chambers, anyone 
Kurt of Oswald, so brilliant, so many good quotes. Here, here's what he said about this. He said, doubt, doubt is not always a sign that a man is wrong. It may be a sign that he's thinking. Yeah. How many of you know that God is not afraid of human beings who think? <laughs> he's, not, he's not worried about our doubts or our questions. In fact, ignoring Doubts or nagging questions in our faith can be a lot like ignoring that, that leak, that drip in the house. Like we ignore, we pretend, oh, that's not that big a deal. We're just going to leave it alone. It'll, it'll go away, right? And things might look decent on the outside. It doesn't look that bad. Maybe a couple towels and a fan will take care of that issue right down there. But if we let that go, it starts to rot. It starts to weaken. And pretty quickly, uh, we can get mold even where you can't see it, and with mold, you start to breathe it in, you don't even know it's there, and what can mold do to you? Yeah, it can make you very sick. It can make you very sick. And so that's, I believe, just one of the reasons why God wants us to be honest about the drips, about the honest doubts and questions we have, because God knows that ignoring the drip behind the wall is not good for our faith. We're not a people who, um, you know, fake it till you make it, right? Fake it till you make it is not uh, something you do if you want to have healthy faith. See, when we live in the light, when we don't hide things, we're giving the Spirit permission to transform us, to heal us, to deepen and mature and grow our faith just in the process of being willing to live in the light and to be honest. So, so hear me, um, friends, despite what you might instinctively believe for whatever reason, God is not upset with you or impatient with you when you have questions or doubts. God does not want you to hide or pretend or ignore the drip, drip, drip of your doubts. God invites you to bring your doubts to him to come to Jesus even in our doubts, to be willing to dismantle even what might be behind that if that's what needs to be done. Because we don't want to let it become this drip that becomes a mess where we ignore it and, and it ends up being even more destructive. We want to bring it to him. Even when we don't believe what we think we should believe. There's a story, powerful story, Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14, that I keep coming back to related to this idea of, of being honest about our belief and our unbelief. And, and in this story, there's a large crowd. It says there's this large crowd gathered around nine of the disciples, and the religious leaders are arguing with nine of the disciples, and Jesus and the other three disciples show up to this you know, kind of scene that's developing, and, and Jesus is like, what's going on? What are you guys arguing about? And what had happened was this father, this dad, had brought his son to Jesus' disciples. Jesus wasn't back yet, but he brought his son to the disciples to try to get deliverance from being possessed by an evil spirit. And here's the deal. That's a completely reasonable thing to do, by the way, because the disciples previously, we know, had been sent out by Jesus. They had already in their ministry, without Jesus there, they had cast out demons before. Um, and so in this situation, at this particular scene, we don't know 
how they tried to cast it out. Um, we know that they had done it before, and so they kind of had an idea what they were doing, but at, for some reason, this situation here, not, no go, it wasn't happening. wasn't happening. And then Jesus shows up, which is a good thing. Now, imagine being the dad, right? If you're the dad in this scenario, you are distressed. You've probably heard stories about other people who, who have been healed or set free by, by the ministry of Jesus or his disciples. And so you decide to take the risk uh, to take your troubled child out in public knowing it could be really bad. It could go really wrong. Um, but you want to see your son healed and you know what's happened for others, so maybe you. But this time, sadly, so far anyway... <laughs> It's not working. The boy is still possessed, and this is quickly becoming a spectacle. It says large crowds were gathering, and so now the father's desperation was turning into despair. And Jesus says at the verse, end of verse 19, he says, bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy, and when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion. He fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has this been happening? And the father replied, since he was a little boy, the spirit often throws him into the fire or to the water trying to kill him. And then he just says, oh, this heart-rending phrase. He says, the father says to Jesus, have mercy on us and help us if you can. Jesus replies, what do you mean if I can? Anything is possible if a person believes. Now, quick time out in light of our last couple sermons on this. Before we try to take a sentence out of context and turn it into a blank check to name it and claim it, right? If you want to know more about this, just take some time this week to study the context and study the passage and then draw your conclusions on maybe what Jesus was getting at. So, uh, all right, back to the story. So, um, Jesus says, what do you mean if I can do anything? Anything's possible to him who believes, who, who trusts in me. And immediately, it says, immediately, the boy's father cries out. And this, oh my gosh, this is such a super honest Thing. I mean, can you imagine if you're the dad being in front of Jesus and saying what we're about to read, what he says, right? <laughs> he says, I do believe. Oh, help, help me overcome my unbelief, right? He's saying, Lord, yes, I, I, Jesus, I believe, I believe. Whew, but there's a lot of other stuff in the mix. Like I got unbelief too. I mean, Jesus, I'm being honest with you right now, even though I know I'm standing right here in front of you, the Son of God, and you could be upset with me, but I'm going to tell you, I do, I do, I believe, and I admit I, at least part of me doesn't believe, which again, that takes guts, right? What an honest thing to say, which I think, again, this is an invitation for us to be honest with Jesus in the same way in our own unbelief. Now, son of God, bunch of people standing around. This guy has an opportunity to proclaim his bold faith, and he says, yeah, I believe, and uh, sorry, part of me doesn't believe. And how does Jesus respond to the dad? Does he say, uh, back of the line, no soup for you. 
right? Does he say, um, hey, listen, listen, buddy, go get some more faith. Like, crank up your faithometer and pray a little more and hype it up till you sound like you have enough certainty. And then maybe you can come back and ask again, like, go hide that drip of unbelief. Like, just wipe that up and don't you dare in front of a bunch of people embarrass me again by acting like you can't just fully trust and believe. Is, is that what Jesus does? No. No, Jesus heals the son, casts the evil spirit out, and sets this boy free. Sets him free. And I encourage you to read. There's more detail to the story, which is fascinating. Read it this week in your time with God. But, but, but just even right here. Whew, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. This is big for us, I think. I think this is actually huge for us. And, and here's why. Because we are, all of us, a mixture of belief and unbelief. A mixture of faith and doubt. And sometimes, if we're honest, with more unbelief and doubt than we'd like to admit. But here's the good news. What we see in this story is true for the father, the dad, as much as it's true for us. Jesus' heart towards us is always one of compassion. He doesn't want us to hide the, the drips, the doubts. He treats our weakness with tenderness. Here's our honest admission of, uh, I have some unbelief. And it doesn't drive him away. It pulls him closer. That's the Jesus that we follow, friends. And in the last kind of half of today's Message. I just want to look at a couple of things that occurred to me um, about doubt and faith and about unbelief and, and maybe even kind of some of this deliverance piece that I think might be important for us to notice um, out of this story. Because our doubts and our questions and our unbelief, again, we don't hide it from Jesus. Um, there's some things that we can sometimes do with our doubts, with our questions. Um, so first thing. Um, you think about this. When we, like the dad in the story, when we are honest um, with Jesus and with each other about our leaky faith, and we'll say, Jesus, I do believe, and who help my unbelief. Um, sometimes the reason we're struggling with doubts or questions or unbelief is because we have a question and we have not found a satisfying answer to that question yet. Maybe it comes because of disappointment or confusion. And maybe we're doubting because we think, I really got to have an answer on this. It is just eating me alive. Now, um, let me say this. I haven't emphasized this in the series so far, but let me just make it clear. Because um, I'm, I'm, I'm often saying, hey, it doesn't necessarily mean the answer is not going to answer what needs to go on. Right? But here, let me say it this way too, though. Answers are good, Right? There are answers. I do want to say there are answers for many of our questions. Not all of our questions, but for many of our questions, there are answers. So here's the deal. When you got doubts or questions or confusion, go looking for answers. Go look, study, <laughs> search, learn, think. Um, as Dwayne used to say all the time if you were around, read your, read your Bibles, right? Read your Bibles, and I happen also to be a pastor, so spoiler alert, I think that trusting the Bible's teachings, 
That's the best source for a follower of Jesus to come through or address doubts that might have a, an answer of some sort in the Bible. Answers are good. We look for answers. So when you have doubts or questions, I'm not saying don't try to find answers. You know what? Sometimes the answers are going to be helpful. Um, and sometimes, especially if you read a troubling Bible passage and you're like, wow, that's really given me all kinds of, like, I don't know what to think about that and what does this mean? Um, in many instances, when you have a question about something in Scripture, there's been a whole bunch of people that have researched and, and have ideas and answers and teachings that can be helpful. Not always, but can be helpful. Um, so ask people that you trust. Ask mature Christians and study with them. And by the way, be a little bit careful about, you know, sometimes we go to YouTube. Anybody ever fall down the YouTube black hole where it's like, you can find people teaching anything at all on any perspective and they sound like experts. So eh, be careful who you trust, right? It can be more confusing sometimes. But, but study, learn, think, think. Now, let me give you an example of, of one of those tough questions that people would like an answer to, uh, tough questions from Scripture that, that often people wrestle with. Um, it's also sometimes, it's, it's, it's known as um, the unpardonable sin. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Unpardonable sin. You ever heard about? So uh, this is kind of this extreme sin that, that Jesus warns against in three of the four Gospels, Matthew chapter 12, Mark chapter 3, and Luke chapter 12. It all gets brought up. Mark 3, we'll read... Uh, his version, because it's a shorter version. So here we go. Um, <laughs> verse 28, Jesus says to his disciples, truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander that they utter. But, uh-oh, here's the big but. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Does that not sound a little scary? Just me? Is this just me? Anyone else? Like, like I remember growing up reading this scripture as a, as a kid, and it scared the pants off of me, right? Uh, and rightfully so, because again, first of all, context is necessary, and if we just take a verse and go, whoa, what does that mean, right? But I've seen this question discussed over and over throughout my walk with God that lots of people wrestle through. We've had a few times here at Hope um, with a few different folks who have been honestly wrestling with this exact same passage and question. And, and a lot of times somebody could read that and, and it could start just, you know, you know, worry. They could start worrying. They could start doubting their faith because of this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, unpardonable sin. Oh no, did I, did I do that? Did I commit that? Because if I did, I can't be forgiven if I'm reading this right. And hear me, I have so much compassion for people who deal with this question because they're honestly looking, most of them are just looking for an answer. So let me just say this. When, when, when someone comes, especially if you're a mature believer, when someone comes to us with this passage or really any other confusing passage or, or a question that they're wrestling through, we don't just spout out an answer, right? That's not helpful. Um, what we need to do is to listen, to listen, to pray, um, to ask for what we've been calling spiritual consent, like we get their permission, like, hey, so you came to me with this. Are you asking me to kind of tell you what I think? And they're like, yeah, dummy, that's why I came to you. But, but we still, right, we just ask for consent. 
And if they say yes, then, then it's a good idea to do our best to study it together, to look at the scripture and the context and explain it. And so, you know, if it was this particular passage, um, and I'm going to butcher this because you really need a whole sermon to kind of explain what's going on in this, and I'm going to try to do it in three sentences, so I'm not that smart. Um, Dwayne could probably stand up right now and like give us a whole sermon on this. So we're going to do that another week when we do tough questions. And I'll be like, I didn't really finish my sermon. Hey, Dwayne, we're going to ask you questions today. So just get ready. Um, but, but if it was the unpardonable sin question, you know, we might say, oh, hey, listen. So Jesus is talking about, if you look at the context and the broader context of scripture. And uh, he's talking about people who attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil. And then they harden their hearts. They won't repent of it or of any sin. Um, So for you, since you do care about what God thinks of you, your heart is still soft, so don't sweat it. You didn't do it, right? You didn't do it. Something like that, right? But, But however we address these things, when somebody has a question, sometimes there are answers. Like, so they have doubts, they have questions, we give our best answer, and sometimes... After hearing a good answer, people are good, right? Oh, phew, thank you. Now they have an answer that helps resolve any question that they were, that question anyway, that they were wrestling with. And so hear me say this again, answers are good. Answers can help with our unbelief. (laughs) But if you've been a Christian for for any time uh, at all, you probably know that sometimes a good answer is not enough. It's not enough because sometimes the question that somebody has, it's not actually about, you know, getting the right answer. Something else oftentimes is going on behind it. So, so let's say in this unpardonable sin deal, we, we do, we give a good answer, right? Great answer, but still they're stuck. They're troubled, that's worth paying attention to. Um, why would somebody still be stuck or troubled if we've given them our best answer? Well, there's several reasons. Um, one might be that, hey, you know what? Uh, maybe there's not a clear answer or they're not convinced by the answer that you know, works for us. Um, maybe there's actually just some mystery and we go, I don't even know for sure the full answer to whatever it is that we're asking. Sometimes it's that. That's why they might feel stuck. Understandable. It's okay. Um, Another reason that somebody might feel stuck is some people, maybe, maybe they just want to doubt, right? They just want to be a skeptic. That's kind of their take. And you know what? No judgment. And that's not for us to make a call or challenge them on. That, that's just a reason sometimes that they stay stuck is they, they want to be a skeptic. Um, but the third one, and this is the one I want to spend a little bit of time on here. Sometimes people are stuck Um, because there is a lie that's been embedded that needs to be addressed so they can get unstuck. And sometimes, especially since we're in this Mark 9 story, this passage here, sometimes that lie is a demonically empowered lie that the enemy is using to keep them stuck. And in those cases, we are not talking about healthy doubt that needs a reasonable answer, or even healthy doubt that doesn't have a great answer that we just hold and kind of live with. It's not that. We're not talking about doubts. We're talking about lies that have become strongholds of the enemy. Think back again to our Mark 9 story with the, with the Jesus uh, and the guy, the, the dad that's like, help my unbelief, right? 
that's a story that reminds us that the father didn't need an answer to his question from, you know, because the teachers of the law and the other disciples were trying to give an answer to his questions. He didn't need an answer. He needed deliverance for his son. Because he didn't get right answers and then he didn't get the deliverance either. Everybody else had failed to cast out the evil spirits. And when that happens, that can start to feel pretty hopeless. It starts to feel pretty hopeless. Like there is no hope for that situation, which is exactly what the enemy thrives on, hopelessness. See, the enemy loves to latch on to our hopelessness and then whisper a lie, kind of throw out the bait until we take the bait. And then it just builds and builds and builds. So I want to make it, you know, an important distinction um, about handling doubts. Because there's a difference between, you know, dealing with doubts and questions that can help us grow in our faith by being honest. That's over here, right? That's what we've been talking about in our series. The difference between that and lies of the enemy. There's a difference. See, wrestling with honest doubt and the lies of the enemy, these are not the same categories. See, when it's a, when it's a lie of the enemy... We have to identify these lies and we don't embrace lies or allow them to have any space in our heart and our minds. I mean, on the one hand, when somebody says, hey man, listen, I'm having lots of doubts, help my unbelief. I get it. I have compassion for you in that place. And, and we all need to be honest about our doubts. We know that ignoring doubts is not helpful. But again, hear me. If the things that you might be calling doubts are actually lies from the enemy, it's a whole different deal. It's a whole different deal. Because now we're talking about spiritual warfare, and now the truth is you are under attack, right? The house isn't dripping, it's flooding. And this requires a different, uh, more intense approach. So, So, and some people are like, so how do you know if it's a lie from the enemy? Okay, here's a few examples um, to know that it's not just doubt. This is a lie from the enemy. Um, often, it's a lie about your identity, about who you are, who God says you are. And, and so the enemy will lie about your identity and say, hey, who, who do you think you are? You're a child of God? <laughs> right. Good luck with that one. Right? That's a lie of the enemy. Um, a lie of the enemy would be a situation where it's a lie about the heart of God being good. So the enemy would whisper, yeah, you, buddy, you're not forgiven. You are not forgiven. Other people, yeah, yeah, but not you. Not you. You're too far gone. Um, the enemy will also whisper lies about the heart of God and his care and love for you by saying, listen, God doesn't care about you. Like, how could God care about you? <laughs> um, Friends, when you hear those kinds of lies, that is not, again, the same as healthy doubt. These are lies of the enemy. And as we've talked about many times here at Hope, um, Scripture says in 1 Peter 5 that your enemy, the devil, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to what? Devour. To devour. And so when his lies 
come, what does verse 9 say to do? Resist, right? Resist him. Well, now, how do we resist? Resist with what? How and with what? We combat the enemy lies with the truth of God's word. Erin, last week, in the message she preached, if you weren't with us, uh, I encourage you to go check out um, the podcast. But, but, but she very vulnerably told parts of her painful story from some recent seasons, and then she gave us these powerful passages of truth um, that she had to lean into, um, scriptures that she leaned into in combating the lies of the enemy that were coming at her in her life. And so these kinds of lies that the enemy throws, sometimes they take root, they become what the Bible calls strongholds, and when that happens, there are different things that might need to happen because it's not just giving an answer to doubt, it's a stronghold. And so sometimes, like in our Mark 9 story, deliverance is needed to clear out that demonic oppression. Um, And sometimes that Deliverance comes maybe not as dramatic as that story where the boy falls on the ground and shrieks and all the other stuff. Sometimes that happens. Um, um, But a lot of times, all that's needed in that deliverance area um, can happen through healing prayer or through spiritual direction where God will bring truth that begins to set us free from the enemy's lies, from the hopelessness. Now, let me pull us back to that kind of example of the unpardonable sin question that people have. Um, here's how it plays out with that. Sometimes there's an answer. Sometimes, um, and more than once, a solid answer was not enough for some folks. And they were really stuck in despair and hopelessness because they were sure that they had committed the unpardonable sin and it was hopeless for them. And it was because the enemy had planted lies. And and in those cases, a more active um, spiritual warfare or even a deliverance uh, is a necessary thing. I, I remember one person who she felt so hopeless about this. Didn't matter how many times we went through the scripture and talked about context and other scriptures about God's love and examples and scriptures of people who had been involved in the occult, which is why she thought she was unforgivable because of her previous involvement in that. But people who had been involved in the occult and been set free and delivered and, and taken into, um, into freedom in Christ. But for her, for her, she was sure. Uh, she was not qualified. Stuck in despair and hopelessness, she had believed those lies. She was so confused. She could never be forgiven, she believed, because of her past um, things she'd been involved in. See, darkness had taken over, and so deliverance was needed for that darkness to be broken. And in our times together, um, with Heidi and myself meeting with her, uh, it was time. She was actually finally ready to, to do that. And friends, when we come to a place in our life where there are these demonically um, empowered lies, um, or even just garden variety lies and misbeliefs, when we finally go, okay, I want to believe. And I do believe, but, but Jesus, help my unbelief. Sometimes that's all we really need to do to step into a willingness to get into the process to be set free. And for her, she stepped into that process with a mature believer who was experienced in deliverance ministry. And long story short, she did get set free. 
She had this huge measure of freedom and joy like we had never seen before. I mean, I, I remember the first time we saw her after she had gone through some of these ministry sessions, you could see it on her face, this, this relief, this joy, because the lies had been broken. And there's so much more on this to say, but I need to wrap us up for today and move us to the communion table. Give me about five minutes and... Uh, Did you really set your watch just there? Okay, sorry. All right. Yeah. Now here's the deal. Um, here, here, when you notice in your life, in your story, that drip, drip, drip of nagging doubts, of questions, doubts or unbelief, I just want to say pay attention to the drip. Don't ignore it. Have the courage to address it, to be honest with God, to be honest with mature Christians around you, be honest enough to say, I believe, I believe and help my unbelief. Um, because where there's a mess, we don't want to ignore the drip. We want to start renovations. And the renovation may simply look like finding answers or accepting that there aren't great answers. Or the renovation may be that you need to do some more deeper house cleaning into realms of spiritual warfare and other things like that. And it's messy <laughs> to start any renovations. But this is where faith gets real. I remember in our house, in our process, when the crew came in to demolish this damaged part of our house, um, it looked like a disaster. Like I came home and I was like, what were we thinking? This is a mess, right? Look terrible. Um, and when we, friends, faced, when we face honest doubt and unbelief in our spiritual journey, it can be just as unsettling, right? And once we take a hard look at that drip of doubt that's been growing in our mind and finally address it, we might start to be, feel anxious or fearful or or even angry. We, we, we might be frustrated. Why am I now questioning all the things that I've always believed are true? Or, or maybe we start to look at those things that need renovation and we start to feel shame that we feel that way or we have that question and we get afraid to talk to others about it. But hear me, when you're in that place of renovations, especially in the messy part, uh, here's the thing about demolishing or demoing the thing that's faulty in your house or in your life, we have to remember that that demo, like it doesn't destroy the place forever. It's a part of the process. And the breaking, the breaking is necessary for the breakthrough. It's necessary. We have to break down that stuff, tear some of that misbelief or wrong beliefs out to enter into a process that might lead to breakthrough. See, we can't leave the leak just leak and drip and produce mold in the house. We can't leave our doubts unaddressed and unexpressed because when we try to do that, the doubts just get louder and become more isolating and damaging to your heart. And I know that even me talking this way in certain Christian circles... Um, that this process of examining our doubts and seeing if the beliefs we were taught actually line up with reality and with scripture, like some people that just feels dangerous, feels unsettling, it feels too messy. Um, 
And part of why people get nervous about it is because um, sometimes when people go down that road of kind of taking apart some of the things that may not be scriptural or true and they're trying to figure it out, um, people start doing that. And because they've thought that I can't question anything, when they begin to question something, then they end up walking away from the faith because they think they got to let the whole thing go. They walk away from God and church altogether instead of staying in a healthy community where people can walk beside them and help them while they kind of fix the damaged part of their house. Some people can't handle that. Or in some churches, you can't do that. So people just go, I'm gonna burn the whole house down, right? Like it's just a section that needs some renovation, but people sometimes burn the whole house down, which is unnecessary. And so in my next and last message in this series, I wanna talk about that. But I do wanna say this. Remember, um, it is okay to say to God, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I feel confused. Part of me believes and part of me is filled with unbelief. Jesus, would you help me in my unbelief? Because here's what happens when we do that. Jesus moves towards that kind of honesty because we serve a God who's not afraid of brokenness. He's not afraid of brokenness. So worship team comes. God is not afraid of brokenness. He's not afraid of things having to get dismantled so something else can be built. Um, And in the middle of the mess of things being maybe looked at or taken apart, we need to remember that God is there. He is present. He's not distant from us. He doesn't withdraw when we have doubts. He draws near to us. And the truth is, God would much rather have you express your honest unbelief to him than walk away from him altogether. (laughs) Listen, he can handle it. He can handle it. And we see this in the dad with the tormented boy in Mark 9, where the dad says to Jesus, help us if you can. Jesus asked, what do you mean, if I can? Now, sometimes we read that, depending on the tone of voice and our own upbringing, maybe, and our view of God, we read that question as an accusation. You gotta have more faith. But what if we read that question of Jesus, not as an accusation, but rather an invitation? See, what if Jesus, in asking the question the way he asked the question, he's, he's inviting the dad to bring his deepest doubts to Jesus, genuinely knowing to know, want, Jesus wanted to know, why, why, do, you, why do you doubt? What, what if it's not to shame him for not having enough faith, but rather to show him that Jesus cares deeply, that Jesus is big enough to handle any of the doubts? See, friends, in the middle of your doubts and mine, Jesus is near. He's near. He treats your weakness with tenderness. Your doubt, your questions, your unbelief even doesn't disqualify you. So take courage today. Take courage and lean into the faith to trust that even if the stuff that's confusing in your life looks like a 
cluttered, dismantled mess, trust that God can actually use your doubt to deepen your faith because he's wanting to rebuild a faith worth having. A faith that is actually based on our covenantal commitment, our relationship with God, the kind of relationship that will never end because we stay in the relationship and we work out the doubts in the relationship. That's the kind of relationship he invites us to. Let's pray. And Dwayne, would you come to lead us to the table? God, thank you for working all things together for good, even our doubts. Even when we can't find the answers we seek, will you help us cling to relationship with you, Jesus? Help us bring all our doubt to you, knowing that you actually invite it and that you can handle it. As we trust you to help us grow in our relationship with you, will you remove any shame we feel about hidden doubts or nagging, dripping unbelief? And instead, would you bring us closer to you as we become more willing to walk fearlessly with you? Jesus, we believe. Would you help us in our unbelief? like to invite you to the Lord's Supper. The night before Jesus was crucified, he gathered with his disciples and um, he said something very almost astounding. Listen to these words from Luke chapter 22. I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. That, that phrase, very eager, can be translated joyful anticipation. Now Jesus knows he's going to die the next day, and yet there was the sense of joyful expectation that he was going to be with his disciples and experience communion with them. This morning, I would like for you to have that kind of joyful anticipation of having communion with Jesus. Now after Jesus had the meal with his disciples, the bread and the cup was passed. And a part of the a part of the story that we forget sometimes is that something happened after that. Listen to these words. After supper, this is verse 20, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. I believe that what Jesus was thinking about and referring to at that point was the Jewish tradition of a wedding. Now, a wedding for a Jewish couple was in two parts, the betrothal, and then sometime later, the actual wedding. As the couple approaches the rabbi and the uh, kind of the tabernacle that they would be under for the wedding ceremony, the rabbi would offer a blessing, and then he would take a cup of wine, he would hand it to the groom, 
he would sip the wine and then pass that to his bride. And she would sip the wine. That was the covenant that they made with each other and with God. The covenant to, as long as I live, I give my heart and my life to you. I believe that when Jesus was passing this cup the second time, he was saying to his disciples, I want to be married to you. I am the bridegroom, Jesus would say, and you are my bride. And as the disciples passed this cup from one to another, it was like they were making a renewed covenant of marriage to Jesus. And this morning when you come to the table, I invite you to come. If you're married, you understand what this means, this renewal of a covenant with God. And if you're not married, or maybe you're not even a believer, you can say, Lord Jesus, for this first time, I commit my life to you. I desire that you are my bridegroom and I am your bride. I make this promise to you. So when you take communion this morning, take it with this idea in mind that you're renewing your pledge. You're renewing your covenant with Jesus to be his bride.